This is Tech Talk with your host, Tom Dioria. Tom will spend the next hour making your life with technology a little easier with explanations of the different aspects of today's technology and how it can benefit your home, small office, or enterprise. Now here's your host, Tom Dioria. Hello and welcome to IMI's Tech Talk on this second Sunday of September. It's 3 p.m. here in Arizona, 6 p.m. in our New York listening area, and I'm Taylor Redden filling in for Tom Dioria. This week we have a pre-recorded segment with Stephen Granade uh, discussing Why So Curious, the, uh, the recent Mars rover landing of Curiosity. Just in case you're a first-time listener, in our first segment, Tech Talk provides you with a review of last week's most significant events in technology. We start with our increased coverage of New York's technology scene, and we follow this with our industry ride report, which could contain information on conferences, announcements by vendors, new releases of software or equipment, or new contract opportunities. If you'd like to contact us about a uh, future show topic or any uh, have any other comments, you can email us at techtalk at imi-us.com, and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like to download this show or any previous shows Tech Talk has had, you can visit us on the web at imitechtalk.com where you can find a listing of all of our old shows, where you can download them, share them, distribute them, however you like, we don't mind. And now our first segment, uh, our Week in Review, with our increased coverage of technology events in New York City and around the world, compiled by Dave Brandon and Jose Batista. First off, we have, as taxi-hailing app comes to New York, its legality is questioned from the New York Times. Uber is the latest taxi-hailing smartphone application to run into regulatory confusion. The app allows cab drivers and passengers to find one another. But, in San Fran- but the San Francisco-based app may not be legal in New York City. Taxi regulations do not allow yellow cabs to make prearranged rides nor can drivers use electronic devices. When a driver agrees to pick up an Uber passenger, they aren't allowed to pick up other fares, which the Taxi and Limousine Commission could consider an unjustified refusal of fares. David Yasky of TLC Chairman said in a statement that New York has led the country in terms of putting new technology to work for riders and that they were currently requesting proposals for smartphone applications. Councilman James Vaca, the the chairman of the city council's transportation committee, said that the spread of taxi apps had the potential to create a two-tiered taxi system in the city, one for people with fancy smartphones who are asked to pay a premium, and one for everybody else. Next up, we have AT&T spending $180 million on New York City connectivity upgrades. This comes to us from New York Convergence. AT&T is doing more than just putting in free Wi-Fi in New York parks. During its first six months of the year, it spent $180 million boosting connectivity in New York State. 
Across the New York metro area, AT&T made nearly 605,000 upgrades and added 44 new cell sites and upgraded 3,000 network connections. It's increased capacity in 3,300 networks and upgraded broadband speeds. In addition, AT&T expanded its 4G LTE network in New York City and also launched it in Buffalo. AT&T says, we're, providing, we're working to build a 4G network that's smarter and better to provide our customers with the superior mobile internet experience. Next up, we have Etsy's community has already sold more than $5 million this year from Business Insider. Etsy CEO Chad Dickerson recently announced a big company milestone. Last year, the company's community generated more than $525 million in sales. This year, the community is on track to crush that number. It's already passed $500 in $500 million in sales. That figure also gives you an idea of what Etsy is making. Etsy takes 3.5% cut from every sale and is 20 cents for every posted item. Etsy also started processing payments for some of its shops through a program called Direct Checkout. On payments, it takes a 3% cut plus 25 cents per transaction. They've already processed 50 million of those types of payments. That means Etsy has generated more than $20 million this year, and the holiday season hasn't even struck yet. Etsy has also announced a new gift card program, which will require their shop owners to sign up for a direct checkout. And it's also offering free payment processing for a short time to encourage its use. That may hit transaction fees in the short term, but in the long term, if more Etsy shop owners adopt direct checkout, it will substantially increase the money Etsy makes from each sale. Okay, from Reuters, we have Motorola unveils three phones for Verizon Wireless. Google's Motorola Mobility unveiled three smartphones to help it compete with bigger rivals Apple and Samsung for the holiday shopping season. Verizon Wireless, the biggest U.S. mobile provider, will sell all three devices, the Droid Razor HD, the Droid Razor Max HD, and the Droid Razor M. The smartphones will use Google's Android software. Motorola showed off the phones at a press event in New York, its first big media gathering since Google bought Motorola. The phones will go on sale at 30 other carriers around the world besides Verizon Wireless, which has an exclusive U.S. deal with Motorola for the devices. Google has disclosed little about its plans for Motorola, which it bought primarily to use for the company's rich portfolio of patents to defend itself in legal battles with rivals. It will keep Motorola as a separate subsidiary so that other Android phone makers such as Samsung do not assume Motorola will have an advantage in accessing Android technology. Motorola Mobility's Droid Razor HD boasts a 4.7-inch screen with a sharper picture than Motorola's previous phones. Verizon Wireless did not announce pricing, but said the device will be ready in time for the holidays. The Razor M is a smaller phone for a more cost-conscious uh, consumer. 
with a 4.3-inch display that covers most of the phone. That device will be available for $100 when it goes on sale. The Droid Razer Max HD will have similar features to the Razer HD, but will boast a longer battery life. Motorola promised that the device could run for 24 hours of phone calls or 13 hours of video viewing. And in other mobile phone-related news, Nokia shows off new Windows smartphones, this coming to us from the Associated Press. Nokia revealed its first smartphones to run the next version of Windows, a big step for a company that has bet its future on an alliance with Microsoft in a crowded market. Investors were disappointed, and Nokia's stock fell sharply. Nokia Corporation's new flagship phone is the Lumia 920, which runs the Windows Phone 8 operating system. The lenses on its camera shift to compensate for shaky hands, resulting in sharper images in low sight and smoother video capture. It also can be charged without being plugged in. The user just places it on a wireless charging pod. Nokia also unveiled a cheaper mid-range phone, the Lumia 820. It doesn't have the special camera lenses, but it sports an exchangeable back so you can switch colors. Nokia CEO Stephen Ellop said that the new phones will go on sale in the fourth quarter in selected markets. He didn't say what they would cost or which U.S. carriers would have them. AT&T and T-Mobile have been selling the earlier Lumia phones. And finally, Oracle's Java patch not enough to stop hackers from PC Mag. Despite Oracle's recent Java security patch, hackers found a way into the program and conducted email phishing campaigns directed at Microsoft and Amazon users. Researchers at the Sans Institute Internal Storm Center and security firm WebSense this weekend, both issued separate reports about the vulnerability, which became public less, last month. ICS focused on fake Microsoft Service Agreement emails that claimed to contain information about important changes to Microsoft Service Agreement and communication preferences. The phishing email copied a legitimate email from Redmond, but replaced one of the hyperlinks with a virus. Meanwhile, hackers used Ill- illegitimate Amazon or order emails to deliver malicious links intended to access personal and financial data, according to WebSense. The security site intercepted more than 10,000 emails with the subject, Your Order with Amazon.com, which urged recipients to click on a hyperlink that sent the victim to a black hole exploit kit hacking tool. Based on Oracle's four-month update cycle, which rolls around again on October 16th, a full fix could be on its way next month. In the meantime, PC Mag's lead analyst for, for security, Neil Rubenking, suggested disabling Java altogether. And that does it for our Week in Review. I'm Taylor Redden, leaving you with Tom DiOria and Stephen Grenade in a pre-recorded segment discussing the Mars rover Curiosity. Well, 
Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on Sunday, September 9th, 2012. I'm Tom Dioria, and as I mentioned to you before the break, uh, we're going to have a really interesting show for you today. Hopefully, uh, you've been watching what's been going on, but we're going to talk about the Mars rover Curiosity, and our guest today is Dr. Stephen Grenade. He is the Director of Projects for the Advanced Optical Systems, a company specializing in robotic vision systems. While at AOS, uh, Dr. Grenade's been involved in helping the space shuttle dock automatically with the Hubble Space Telescope and inventing a way for robot helicopters to locate and pick up loads without a human at the controls. He received his Ph.D. from Duke University, where he cooled atoms to nearly absolute zero using lasers, which is a non-trivial task for those of you that don't know. Uh, Stephen, thanks for taking the time to be with us. We really appreciate it. You bet. I'm looking forward to this. So give us an overview. Tell us what Curiosity is all about. Uh, Hopefully our listeners haven't had their heads in the sand recently. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of what... Curiosity is is all about is really summed up by the full name of the mission, which was the Mars Science Lab. What NASA did was take a suite of really advanced scientific uh, equipment and bundle it up to drop it onto Mars and then send it out there to to rove around, to drive around and look at Mars and and start ask, what was the the conditions like way back when, billions of years ago, when we think that there was, was water on Mars, when we think that there maybe could have been life on Mars. It's got a bunch of sophisticated new sensors that look at the rocks, they look at the soil and the air, and they sample it for things like carbon and oxygen, the, the kind of things that will show us about water and show us about potential life, again, way back then. And it really is the, the biggest and most ambitious thing we've sent to Mars. I mean, we've, we've taken Curiosity, a rover that's going to drive around. It weighs about as much as, as a Mini Cooper. It's about that long, a little wider, a little taller, sort of like a, a squat SUV, and put it on Mars, and we're driving it around from Earth. That's pretty cool. I mean, it's, I've heard it referred to as uh, uh, what you said, some kind of vehicle with all this technology stuck in its trunk. Um, yeah, exactly. When Curiosity was landing or on its way down, I gather one of the tougher parts of the job, besides getting it there in one piece, was stopping its immense speed so it could land on the surface of Mars without destroying itself. Um, mm-hmm. How did that happen? I mean, I, they, they described it as seven minutes of terror. I'm sure it was yeah. more than that. Well. It's kind of like airplanes in that the takeoff and the landing are always the most exciting. And the the big thing that made landing Curiosity so exciting and, and NASA sort of playing it up to seven minutes of terror is that you, you can't fly it down. It's all got to be automated. Given how far away Mars is right now, light takes about 14 minutes to get from here to there. And so when I say light, that includes things like radio waves that we're using to talk with it. So if you were going to try to pilot it down like soldiers do with UAVs, you'd be looking at about a 14-minute gap between you pushing the joystick and the command getting to Mars and another 14 minutes before it comes back here and you see what happened. So there's no way to do it live. It's all got to be done by computers. 
And that's also uh, part of the reason why people were nervous. By the time we started knowing about Curiosity hitting the atmosphere and starting those seven minutes to land, it had already been on the ground either all together or in pieces for seven minutes. So you're waiting there for results that have already happened and that you've got no direct control over. And you could be sending commands just out into space because there's nothing there to receive it. That's pretty scary. Yeah, and knowing that whatever has is going to happen has already happened, you just don't know it yet because it's taking 14 minutes for all the signals to come back. So what they did is they programmed it in so that it, it's coming into Mars going about 13,000 miles an hour. Uh, it's got the, the heat shield. You know, if you've ever seen any of the video back when the Apollo capsules would come uh, in for a landing, it's kind of like that. The atmosphere just heats it up as you come screaming through it. You get a heat shield that gets up to about 2,100 degrees Celsius. So you're talking, you know, hotter than lava. And you've got to have a heat shield to protect it while it's coming down and flying it in. It's not just falling. It's actually flying its way. The computers on board have uh, autopilots, have what are called an inertial measurement unit, you know, gyros and accelerometers, like a, a more powerful version of what's in your iPhone so that you know when it's tilted. So it, it comes down and slows down from those 13,000 miles an hour to about 1,000 miles per hour. And then it explodes a charge that pops a parachute, just the the biggest, strongest supersonic parachute NASA's ever used. Uh, you're talking about a parachute that weighs 100 pounds but has to withstand about 65,000 pounds of force. So it, it pops that parachute to slow down more and blows more what they call pyro, pyrotechnics, to blow the heat shield off. And then as it starts to come down, eventually they're not going to land using the parachute and just have it crash into the ground. What they do is they fire some more pyros and blow another set of rockets around the lander so that it comes down on rockets. You know, sort of like what the Viking probe did uh, way back in the 70s. But they, then it gets even more complex because they can't land using the rockets. If you get too close to the ground, you stir up all of that dust. It could land on the rover. It could damage instruments. You could dig the rover to where it could never drive out again. So they use this sky crane thing where they get above the ground, and then they lower it on a tether, lower the, the rover down to actual curiosity before the sky crane then cuts the lines loose and, and flies off. And all of this, again, completely automated, completely computer-controlled. Why did they go with that new technology of the sky crane? Hadn't, hadn't they used, uh, I don't know, something like, I think, airbaggers or something in the past? Why did they change this right. better... The, yeah, the, the previous rovers, what they did is they, they took the rovers and they sort of wrapped them in a lander that had really like airbags or bubble wrap around it. And it would come falling down, you know, it had a parachute to slow down, and then it would cut the parachute and land and sort of tumble. And then that lander, the bubble wrap would deflate, the airbags would deflate, and it would unfold so the rover could drive out. But the problem is that Curiosity is a whole lot bigger than the previous rovers that we sent there, like Spirit and Opportunity. You know, Spirit and Opportunity were weighed, you know, a small enough amount that they could use that sort of lander and airbag approach. So they could not do that with Curiosity. And it also had the problem with the, the airbag approach that you come in and you cut the parachute free and then you're tumbling and you're going to tumble for a while, which meant that you couldn't land just anywhere. 
your landing wasn't super accurate, so you had to make sure you weren't close to anything, no cliffs, no mountains or anything like that. It's going to bounce and roll. You know, you can't land near hills in case you hit one and are stuck at an angle. But with something like uh, rockets, you can maneuver and get exactly where you want to be. You can have a radar that's looking and says, yep, that's a good flat space. I'm going to put the, the thing down there. So it gives you significantly more flexibility. Yeah, a lot more flexibility, a lot more control. And that's the Viking lander, the, the probe we sent in the 70s, used rockets on its side. Um, I mentioned that there was a bunch of a dust that, that you kick up, and the Viking lander wasn't as concerned about that. It didn't have to move. It landed, it had legs, it was fine. But the rover's coming down on its wheels. You don't want to dig those wheels in so that it's not going to be able to, to drive off. And so that's why they added this sky crane maneuver where they've got 25 feet of nylon rope that they use to lower it down. And there's a, a big benefit in this approach, along with the flexibility, is that you can make sure that most of your weight, most of the, you know, your payload weight is going towards what you want, scientific equipment and things like that. Um, 8% of Curiosity's total weight is scientific instruments, which doesn't sound like a tremendous amount, uh, except that if you go back to the previous rover, Spirit and Opportunity, it was 1% because the airbag lander was so heavy to try to protect it. That's pretty interesting. Uh, we have to take a break. I want to get back to this as quickly as possible. I'm Tom Dioria. We're on IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. It's Sunday, September 9th, 2012. And uh, we're talking to Dr. Stephen Grenade about uh, Curious on Mars. So please stay tuned. We're going to be right back after these messages. Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom DiOria. It's the 9th of September 2012. And uh, we just had a great segment, and this is going to be a great two more segments. We're talking to Dr. Stephen Grenade about curiosity on, uh, on Mars, I was going to say on the moon. Um, and before the break, uh, Stephen was telling us that 8% of what curiosity has is equipment. And is that a lot of, is it like 4%? equipment and 4% backup equipment, or is all of the 8% unique equipment doing different and multiple things? Uh, the 8% is actually the individual scientific instruments. So that's the stuff that looks at the soil, that looks at rocks, that can dig. Uh, there are some redundancies built into the system, but not a lot. It's not like the... Um, for example, there are two sets of computers on board that are not included in that 8% for redundancy. The scientific instruments, they're, very, they're far less backups for those just because they are such one-of-a-kind instruments. And the science team wanted to pack as many different kind of instruments as they could in there to get as much data as possible. Now, you mentioned, I think, there's a 14-minute delay in sending a signal up there and getting... Well, it's 14, each, 14 minutes each way. 14 minutes each way. on getting an answer. Mm-hmm. So how does one, how do the scientists at NASA learn to cope with that? It's not <laughs> like playing a video game with this instant response. I mean, right. is that something you learn or you just let happen? 
what you end up doing is writing software to automate as much stuff as possible. So, for example, when they're driving the rover, they're not, again, using a joystick or doing anything like that. They're saying, I want you to go here and then here and then here. And there's software on board that uses the cameras. There are uh, a couple of collision avoidance cameras that look and say, okay, there's a rock over here. I should probably dodge out of the way a little bit so that it's got the smarts for that. You have routines that say, okay, I want to pick up this rock over here. Okay, I've got cameras and can recognize it and help the arm reach down and grab it. So they're really having to think many steps ahead and and plan for as many contingencies as possible and then let the rover do its thing and wait you know, the 28 minutes round trip to make sure everything worked the way that they expected. I don't know where uh, we got this, but we heard that the uh, computers are less powerful than one gets in an iPhone. Is that true? I mean, is that, is, big... that is absolutely true. Is there a big technology gap from what we know today versus when they started to build this? Yeah, and there are really two reasons behind this, and that was something that I had to sort of get used to uh, when I moved from you know, being concerned with the commercial world to doing work with NASA and doing work with the military. The first thing is this: it takes a long while for missions like this to happen. You don't have a six-month turnaround or a one-year turnaround. You've got an eight-year turnaround, for example, to choose processors. So you're looking at technology that was chosen eight years ago, and then you have another whammy in that they, you've got to get processors that can work in space, that can deal with the temperature extremes and the radiation environment and all of that. The processors that are on board the Curiosity rover run at about 132 megahertz clock speed, which would be real impressive if we were in 1995. It's got 120 <laughs> megs of RAM, you know, and it just it sounds way underpowered. But the eight-year delay and the need to have space-certified parts really drive that. And a big, big part of that is the radiation. You've got all the radiation flying around in space. You've got a decent amount on the surface of Mars. And as that radiation passes through silicon chips, it can actually flip the charge in a memory so that for a bit, a one becomes a zero or a zero becomes a one. And those random bit flips can completely screw up your programming and, and how it's performing. And we've got tricks to deal with that. You know, you can make the chips less likely to have the bit flips. You can build in error-correcting code in the chips that, uh, you know, you've got redundancy and the ability to go back in and fix any errors that it finds. But all of that comes at a cost of not having as fast a processor as what you can get down here on Earth. But that being said, it still works. They're able to do what they need to do with it. One of the things you mentioned... Uh... You know, you can you can fix problems and stuff, and we also heard that uh, they're upgrading the uh, software as it moves along up there. Mm -hmm. um, is it the same type of thing of when I turn on my Mac and uh, I get a thing that says uh, update your software and then the, something magically happens? I mean, are you it, sending stuff up there and it's just going in there and changing the code that's been significantly tested so you don't enter a bug or something? Right. It's a lot like if you've ever upgraded the firmware on your router. You know, on your home router, it'll occasionally say, hey, it's time for a firmware upgrade. Uh, it's a lot like that um, for the rover. Now, it's, it's complicated by the fact that, you know, if your router 
sometimes you get a bad firmware upgrade and you brick your router. It stops responding. You've got to go yank power to it or push a factory reset or something like that. And there's nobody on Mars to do that for us. So if something goes wrong with the software and the firmware, then you're kind of up a creek. So they're, they're very careful about this. Um, and it, it, again, it's complicated by that 14-minute delay to send something there and 14 minutes back, and the fact that they just don't have a whole lot of bandwidth. Um, they're using something called the, the JPL Deep Space Network, which is a globe-spanning set of giant antennas so that we can always be talking to Mars. And then Curiosity has its own antenna that it can point at Earth when it can see it, or if it can't see Earth directly, we've got a couple of satellites around Mars that it can talk to, and then those satellites talk to us. But at best case, you're talking about two megabits a second kind of bandwidth. Sometimes you're talking about bandwidth that's about 300 bits per second. I mean, it's essentially an old 300-baud modem. So it's going to take you a while to upload stuff. It's going to you have to be patient. And then to make sure that you don't brick the, the rover and so that you don't have a $2.5 billion useless thing on Mars, they test the software extensively, and the rover has a primary and backup computer, so you can flip from one to the other if there's a problem. And in each computer, you've got multiple copies of both the old and the new software. So you put the new software in, and you load it in stages, test it out, and as soon as you're confident with that, then you load the new software in the other one. And in fact, this first time around, they took four days just very cautiously going through all of that to get both the primary and backup computer upgraded. I guess you have to be used to it by now. For those of us that were around back then, those slow speeds were frustrating, but that's all we had, so we were used to it. So Yeah, it worked, I, I remember I being on a 300-baud modem and, and thinking it was the fastest thing I had ever seen. Yep, I mean, you know, putting your phone receiver into this rubber thing that held, cradle that held it, it was pretty funny. Uh, yep. Kids listening to this show today are shaking their heads going, what are they talking about? Nobody's <laughs> that old. Never experienced um, that joy. Yep. Um, we're going to take another break. Um, so uh, a little earlier, but uh, I want to get into the other questions. I don't want to cut you off after I okay. ask you the next question. So I'm Tom DiOrio, or on IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Grenade about uh, Curious Up on Mars right now. Turn on your uh, TV. I'm sure you'll see things going on there and uh, listen to uh, what's going on. We're going to take a break. We're going to be right back after these messages. Please stay tuned. Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. It's Sunday, the 9th of September, 2012. We're talking to Dr. Stephen Grenade about Curiosity up on Mars. We were just reminiscing about the old days. Um, <laughs> tell us about um, how, and I don't want you to give away any uh, top secret secrets here, but uh, sure. how do you keep people from uh, screwing around with what you're doing, hacking in or or finding out things that you don't want them to find out about. Is that a major effort as part of this whole project? The good news is I don't have any top-secret information about that to spill, so I think we're all safe. All I've good. got is the publicly available stuff. And 
I know that there have been folks online, uh, you know, hacker groups, groups like Anonymous that have said, hey, we're going to try to, to hack Curiosity. And from the research that I've done and, and looking at security experts talking about this, there's sort of two different ways that you could go about it. And one of them, I think, is nearly impossible to do sort of the direct, let me take over the, the transmission kind of approach. Um, that would be very hard to do without a lot of money and, and a decent amount of time. There's a second way that I'll talk about that I think is, as usual, sort of the easy way to do it. The straightforward way would be, you know, send your commands directly to the Curiosity rover. And so, first of all, you're going to have to transmit your commands louder than the deep space network. You're going to have to drown out the deep space network. And it has a maximum transmitting power of up to 400 kilowatts. So you're going to have to have a, a really hefty transmitter to begin with. And then you're also going to have to be listening in on the commands that NASA is sending because there's a lot of back and forth sort of forward error correction going on. Uh, it's kind of like with TCP IP where they're trying to anticipate what's going to happen next so that you can make sure that your chain of commands are correct. So you've got to do a man-in-the-middle attack, and that's going to be tough because the signals that NASA sends out are very directional. You know, they're not going everywhere. They're pointing it at Mars. So you're going to have to find some way of, of spoofing in that. I don't know if you put an airplane up in the air. So, you know, as you can see, we're sort of piling on more and more effort to try to do this because we haven't talked about trying to break the signals encoding. And I don't know what they're using, but, you know, say they're doing something like what they use for satellite TV. You can crack it, but it's going to take some time. And then you've got to deal with the fact that JPL will be updating software on a, on a regular basis, and they're monitoring the rover at all times. So if you try to piggyback your own joyriding software on theirs, there's a really good chance that they'd notice it quickly. So you'd have to shut down access to the rover to anyone but yourself, which they're really going to notice. It would be loud and noisy and take a lot of money and a lot of effort. As is usually the case, the easier way is to do some kind of social engineering and try to get, you know, a scientist on the inside or try to get access to one of the deep space network computers. That would be more doable. Now, I don't think it's very likely. You know, the folks who have resources and the know-how to do the, those kinds of things, they've got a whole lot juicier targets out there. You've got military targets. You've got nuclear power plants. Uh, I'm super excited about the rover on Mars, but I don't know that it has a whole lot of military value for any, um, say, foreign uh, country that really wanted to do something to it. Well, let's hope they keep busy on packing into other things. <laughs> That's right. Um, one question that, that uh, we got asked here is, uh, how's this thing powered? Is it solar power? Or, uh, does it have a uh, propane tank on the back of it? <laughs> <laughs> you wheel it down to the Home Depot and fill it up? Yeah. It's actually it's powered by radiation. Um, oh, earlier right. rovers did use solar panels, and that they worked pretty well, but that meant that you were limited to what you got out of the sun during the day. And the wind on Mars is constantly stirring up dust clouds, and that can reduce the sunlight. You can dump dust on the solar panels. With the Spirit and Opportunity rover, we were fortunate that, you know, the same winds that would dump dust on the solar panels would occasionally blow them off. But in general, it's kind of an uncertain variable source of power. So NASA actually went back to an earlier form of power that they called the radioisotope thermoelectric generator, or RTG, because, you know, NASA loves acronyms. 
Uh, this is actually technology that we've used on, for example, the Voyager satellites that we launched in the late 70s. They produce more power than solar panels, and they're more stable uh, over time, and they don't depend on the sun so that you can go where the, you know, the sun isn't great on Mars. You can go in the shadow of mountains and things like that, and they're not very fragile. And the way that they work is they use plutonium-238, which is a type of plutonium that's not weapons-grade. Um, it gets used in nuclear power plants and, and in things like this. And as it goes through radioactive decay, it gives out a bunch of heat and not really all that much penetrating radiation. So now you've got a heat source that you can turn into electricity to power the rover, and you can also use some of that heat to keep the rover at the within the temperature range that the scientific instruments need it to be, you know, the cameras and things like that, uh, to make sure that they're going to be okay temperature-wise. It's going to last for about 14 years. Uh, it produces about 100 watts, which isn't a lot. I mean, you're talking about an old-style incandescent light bulb worth of power. But the rover it isn't active at night since it's hard for the cameras to be able to steer it. So what they do is they shut it down and let that, RTG power up some batteries so that they've got more power during the day to do power intensive things like driving and drilling and scooping. What are you looking for up there? I know we're looking for signs of life and whether or not there's mm -hmm. really water up there. Are we looking for just anything we can find that will give us some hint of how Mars was formed? Yeah, we're looking at what was Mars like in the past. And the thing that I always have to remember is that we haven't looked a lot at Mars. You know, Mars used to have a wide variety of climates, we think, and there was a bunch of stuff going on, kind of like on Earth. And all of that gets written into the geological record. So if we look at the geological record, we can get an idea of what liquid water on Mars was like. You know, did, was it actually there three billion years ago? And if there was life, that's probably when it existed. So we're using geology to look into Mars's past. But we really haven't looked at a bunch of Mars. You know, the, the Viking probe landed and looked at the area around it, which was really neat, but it's kind of like going out into your backyard and saying, now I know everything about Earth. Huh. So we're, we keep putting these rovers down in different places so that we can get a wider view, and we put satellites in orbit so that we can get a wider view of what Mars is, is all about. Curiosity specifically is really acting like the robot version of a human geologist. Uh, it landed in a crater called Gale Crater next to a five-kilometer-high mountain, which is great because with mountains, you know, you've got the layering, and you can look through the, the layers of Martian soil and dirt and rock to look back into the past and look for traces of water and the signs that that water put into the rocks and the dirts. And since the mountain is exposed, you can get to the layers easily, and you can drive Curiosity up that slope because it's a fairly gentle slope and look at all those different layers as you go. And Curiosity does what a human geologist would do. It looks at rocks, it looks at soil, it looks at their distribution and what they're like. It takes samples out of there. It's got a, you know, a close-up camera and lens so it can pick up a rock and look at it very closely. It's got instruments that let it determine what the rocks and the soil and the air have in them. It uses scientific chemical instruments like gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, laser spectrometry, X-ray diffraction, uh, all the kinds of things that you would find in a chemical lab. And what I think is really cool, is it's got something called ChemCam, and it's a camera and a laser. What Curiosity does is use the laser to blast a rock and vaporize part of it, and then it looks at the vapor to see what 
is inside the rock, which means we've sent a robot with a laser to Mars. So if there's any current life on Mars, I think we're going to look more like invaders than anything else. Or at least it'll be able to defend itself. Um, <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, Dr. Grenade, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. I'd like to have you on the show again after uh, a little bit more is discovered. I've got so many more questions for you. This has been my favorite planet uh, since I was in elementary school. So um, quickly tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you if they want to uh, follow up. Absolutely. I am available by email. My email is Stephen, my first name, at grenades, G-R-A-N-A-D-E-S dot com. Uh, I am also active on Twitter under the handle Sargent, S-A-R-G-E-N-T, and you can look for my name on Google+. Great. Thanks again. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. You bet. I want to thank Terry Ruggiero, IMI's president, Dave Brandon, Dan Diori, and Jose Batista for the Week in Review. I want to thank uh, Taylor Redden, who's our producer and also did the Week in Review this week since we're on vacation. Uh, for the um, Matt Campagni is our executive producer. And without Robert Baumbach in the production department, you wouldn't hear a word we said. Thanks again for listening, and please don't forget to tune into Tech Talk next week at 6 p.m. in New York on KFNX AM 1100. Remember to send us your suggestions for future shows or ask us questions by sending an email to techtalk at imi-us.com. Have a great week, and thanks again for listening.